Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. This week we're airing the second half of the live event at the 2015 Westminster Theological Seminary Preaching Conference in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Todd, Amy, and Carl are joined by Drs. Joel Beakey and Kent Hughes, this time answering audience questions. So let's join that audience again for Mortification of Spin Live. Well, we have some questions from you guys that I'm just going to throw out there and whoever wants to be the first one to take them. I come from a church which has embraced the church growth movement and sound teaching has been slowly diminishing from the pulpit. The church would like me to return to serve after graduating. What is your best advice to a seminary graduate with an easy opportunity which can turn ugly the moment you begin to preach from the pulpit? Oh, okay. I assume he's talking about going in as the, the lead pastor, senior pastor. I think that's implicit in the question. And uh, my answer would be this, and part of it will key off what was said by Joel a little earlier. Uh, when, I, uh, when I came to college church some those years ago, now 35, longer than that, uh, I noticed the men didn't carry Bibles to the church. Um, Women did some, but the men didn't carry Bibles, and it's because they didn't have a tradition of Bible exposition or opening the Bible. It was more devotional, evangelical type of preaching. That's a generalization and not fair to everybody that was there. And uh, it took about uh, three or four years before I'd start to hear the rustle of pages when I was preaching. It took took some time for people. And I... uh, I poured myself into my pulpit. I, I, I worked hard on it. And one of the, the dictums that I live by, it's, it's a sin to bore your congregation. And if you've got sixth graders and on up in there, you've got to keep it interesting. Well, I, I think it's not a given that uh, expositing the Bible is boring. I think it can be the most exciting thing in the world, but you've got to work at it. You've got to see the heart of that text. You've got to apply it. It's got to be, at times, uh, illustrated and, and then come from a heart that is passionately on fire. And if you're really on fire, they'll sense it. And even the children will sense it. I think it's really even true just in a postmodern culture. They'll, they'll listen to a heart that really believes something. And so I would say I would go there, but... Um, I would know that uh, there probably are attention spans been reduced. They think that good preaching is just full of evangelical cliches and an invitation or something at the end, a lot of that kind of preaching. And you're going to have to prepare, prepare well, work hard, and realize that it does take time to change the culture. And then, and I, I think we would all agree, what happens is that when your people become really good listeners, they help you with your preaching because they're listening intently. But he's going into a hard situation and needs to go in heads up and uh, ready to do the job. I don't know if anybody else has got any advice yeah, Would any of you um, say don't go? <laughs> Stop. Well, I, I think there's, a, you know, maybe premature to, to see too often when you're a theological student, you're looking, you know, one, you're wondering what's going to happen to you when you get done, of course. 
And when one opportunity comes along, you tend to think, well, this has got to be the one, and this has got to be the one for my whole life. But the Lord has a way of having a lot of doors of possibilities open for us at different points in our life. And sometimes you think maybe this is the only door that's going to go open, but maybe four doors will go open by the time you graduate. So I would explore different possibilities, wait on the Lord, keep praying. I'd look at certain situations. I'd look at this situation and say, maybe I could do a little work in that church. Maybe I could... Maybe I could do a few sermons if the, if the door would open to preach there a few time, more times and get to feel the situation more. But at the same time, keep an open mind for something else the Lord might bring along and, and keep laying all those options before him. And really what happens then, often, is that in due time, certain providential things will happen that maybe this door will go closed and there'll be three other doors and then that door will go closed. And when you actually have to make a decision... Usually, the Lord just leaves one door open. Sometimes you have to struggle between two doors or so. But don't panic now. Just keep praying, keep waiting, keep it in mind. Try to use opportunities to explore, but wait on God's will for the definitive time when he actually will guide you through one particular door. I would also say, uh, speak with the leadership of that church and say, I I see this. I notice you've gone this direction. Um, If I come... Um, that's not the direction I'm going. Are you going to be okay with that? Which if they tell you they will, they actually won't be okay with that. Um, so you need to know that. Uh, but you, that if, if they're saying, if, if you explain to them how you would like to lead the church and they say, yes, that's what we want, you need to also know that they don't actually know what that means. Yeah. Um, they, that, they're, that they don't understand that that means some people are going to leave the church and that you will be blamed for that and that it could get very ugly very fast. So you just need to know that, mm-hmm. and if you're going to be ready for that. Um, because if they want you and you represent a change, it's, it will probably get ugly. And you need to be ready for that possibility. I would simply add that uh, I think it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a young man's error to overestimate his own importance and also to uh, underestimate the amount of time it takes to achieve good, lasting change. I think uh, when you move into a situation like that, the likelihood is that you're going to have fairly minimal influence for, for quite a while. And that may not be a bad thing, but good because change takes time. But you would get disillusioned very quickly if you don't see an overnight transformation, and it's simply not going to happen. Uh, I would also add, I, I use this example all the time. Martin Luther decides in 1519, 1520, he needs a vernacular liturgy in Wittenberg. He doesn't implement a vernacular German liturgy until 1525, five years later, for various reasons. One of them is he wants to get the music right. But I also think he understands that trying to push it quickly would have split the Reformation and fundamentally weakened the project. It's a good example, I think, of where somebody knows where they've got to go to, but they also realize it's going to take years rather than weeks to get there. And I think that's a difficult thing to grasp when you're younger. Yeah. Once you get older, it becomes, it becomes easier to wait on the whole. And I would say, uh, underlying that question, I suspect there's a certain impatience which would probably not go well. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice. Okay, well, let's start with Joel. Uh, what do you do when someone says that they're not being fed? Feed them. No. <laughs> yeah. 
I actually, uh, we actually get that problem in our circles quite often because people are looking for more subjective experiential feeding and they think they're not getting it from this minister or from that minister. It's less of a problem than it used to be. But yes, um, what I say to such a person is this. Is what you're hearing the truth? And they always say yes. And then I say, well, what you need to do then is really bow your knees and lay this before the Lord that you'll at least get one thing from a sermon, from the preacher, whether it's me or someone else, that you can feed on in the week to come. Pray for one thing. I said, as you pray for one thing, you'll probably get two or three or four. But right now, you've developed a mindset, my friend, that is difficult because you've become critical. You're starting to listen for what you don't hear rather than what you do hear. And when you get a critical spirit, pretty soon everything is bad. So I just want to lovingly warn you, uh, this critical spirit will do more damage to your own soul than to anyone else. So you need to start taking a different attitude to, to, to listening. Ask for one thing you can take home with you and build from there. And then share that one thing with your family and start speaking positively about the minister and about his sermons. And just see what the Lord might not do with that. And eventually, you may learn to really appreciate the pastor you have. So don't run away from that church so quickly. I mean, you may be right. There may be a, maybe the pastor really just doesn't feed at all. is isn't really that biblical. But just don't run away because of a feeling you're not being fed. You need to really examine your own soul first of all. I think if the person's asking the question, you know, I'm not be, well, saying I'm not being fed at some other church, not yours where I attend, I'd affirm what, what, very much what Joel says there. I think if it was a question about my church, I'm not being fed by your preaching, my instinct would be to refer that person to the elders because I'm not the best person to, to stand in judgment over my own preaching, obviously. I, I prepare in a way that I think each week. I'm trying to feed people. So if people aren't being fed, there's a problem somewhere that, that I'm just not getting. So I would actually refer this person to my elders and, and get them to talk to my elders about my preaching, what they consider to be uh, inadequate, inappropriate, and, and see what the el- whether the elders felt the problem was ultimately with that person, with me, or with some combination of the but two. I, and I agree with that. I think that's a great answer. But I, 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 think, I, I think that ought to be offered in conjunction with the kind of counsel that Joel suggested. Because I, as their pastor, yeah. you, you have a, a level of spiritual authority to say, you know, brother, sister, be praying about this. You know, I, you know, I, no, I'm your pastor. I want to feed you well. So, you know, be, and, and to, because oftentimes by the time you hear it, I, I think there's already begun a cycle in this person's mind of, of kind of criticism. And so to, to get a gently offered but clear admonition from their pastor is a good thing. But I agree. I think there's also something uh, helpful about, particularly if there's, if there's good trust between the members of the session, pastor included, to be able to say, so I've got brothers part of the session of this church. If this is something you're really concerned about, you can, you can speak to them. And... Lord willing, if it's a great relationship, um, and, and if the case, which is probably true, which is you probably are faithfully feeding the people, then t- for that person to hear from somebody else also on the session, similar counsel could be very helpful for them. But I, I think both of those, I mean, I don't have anything to add to, I thought. 
Well, I, I, it was really good I agree with what Carl said, but it's one step down the road further for me because I've actually told, told my congregation, if you've got a problem with my preaching, yeah. please come to me. I, wa I want to know, but I want to hear it from your own lips. I want you to use Matthew 18 principle with me and, well, and let's talk, with yeah, yeah, yeah. And talk it over. Yeah. And then if we can't yeah. come to resolution, yeah. you know, involve the elders. But uh, it's good. You know, most of the time when people criticize you, they're, they're at least 10% right. And sometimes they're 90% right, but, but there's usually some grain of truth. You know, when a mother comes to me and says, you know, you're not bringing enough illustrations lately for my kids, quite often it's right. And I start yeah. thinking, oh, I've been yeah. not bringing enough to the kids. So that can help you. This is kind of a related question that I just thought of. Um, maybe I'll direct this towards Kent, because um, you kind of touched on this earlier a little bit. But in that situation where someone says they're not being fed, I just think of all the challenges that pastors have now in our cultural context, and the shortening of attention span, like you had mentioned, and the individualism. And um, it made me think of in Hebrews, where the pastor to the Hebrews says, you know, I want to be teaching you this, but I have to, you know, I want to be giving you the meat, but I'm still stuck here on the milk, and I have to still talk to you about these basic doctrines that you still don't have. You can't even be teachers of these yet. Where do you discern then in your preaching, you know, between what you want to preach, but then knowing your congregation well, what you actually preach from that text? Well, I uh, basically, what I say to myself is the text is sovereign, so I'm going to preach the text that's in front of me as fully as I possibly can within the whole corpus of Scripture, uh, you know, with its uh, Christ-centered implications and so on. So I say that to myself. Um, when you're working hard to communicate, and you do, I, I used to keep a list in front of me of all the different kind of people that are in my congregation, the age span, so I could, I could be thinking about those things. I, uh, I, I, this may sound a little bit, I have to be careful how I say this, but there's oftentimes I think maybe the shepherd knows what the sheep need more than what the sheep think they need. And you can, in our culture today, have people, especially with the radio out there, and I'm, uh, I'm talking about listening to religious broadcasts and so on, they can listen to a lot of cliché stuff and cliché music, and then because they're not getting that, they say they're not getting fed. So I think we need to be careful about that. And then this is just another thing. It, it can be misinterpreted, but oftentimes when some people want to leave a church, the safest thing they can say is, I'm not being fed. Not give the real reason that they're leaving. They didn't make friends. They didn't feel welcome. They didn't uh, get to ascend with, to any power within the structure. So I think you need, if you're really working at it and you love people and love the Lord, um, I, shouldn't, I, I wouldn't be just shook up by that kind of criticism. Not being fed can mean a lot of different things. It can That's mean a, a good lot point. Of different things, yeah. Okay, moving on. When is Rev Master T's full length album dropping? <laughs> well, that has to be a wrap. The people question. want to know. Yes. That question, by the way, was from Dr. Beaky. And so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Mama said, knock you out. Just the, the, to give you the short story, about five or six years ago, Colin Campbell, who does children's gospel records in Australia, 
Uh, I got an email from him, I didn't know who he was, and he said, I listened to a lecture you gave on Gregory of Nazianzus. Would you mind if I turned it into a children's rap album? So I said, sure, but you can't do it under my name. You've got to give me a, a rap name. So he said, oh, I'll call you Rev Master T. So he gave me this, uh, this rap name. And apparently, if you look on the liner notes, it says Rev Master T appears uh, courtesy of Carl R. Truman Associates, apparently. So. <laughs> but I am the only person who's used the term Gregory of Nazianzus in a rap record as of this moment, I believe. It's really good. My friend Derek it's Thomas leaked it to the internet. My friend, yeah, in the looser sense of the word. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Isn't there a certain emphasis on introversion and concentrating on one's own holiness that leads to preaching that is not God-centered and causes us to look for our hope to our behavioral change and not Christ? That, that is possible. It's an abuse of course, of the whole concept of holiness and the whole purpose of salvation. Um, often these kinds of questions are asked in our day in which there's no self-examination, hardly at all, from a rather antinomian perspective, however, where we don't really need to be made that holy and people are just saying, well, I'm saved by grace only and that's all I, all I need. So there's a balance there that we need to maintain. And sometimes people who haven't read the Puritans accuse the Puritans of this type of thing. And the reason why they do so is because they haven't read the Puritans. They're going by what someone else says. As J.I. Packer pointed out so well in his book, The Quest for uh, uh, Godliness, uh, A Puritan Vision of the Christian Life is a subtitle. Packer said he didn't know of any Puritans that were concerned just with introspective holiness. But he said... The, way, the reason why they examined themselves was so that they could give all the glory to God they'd be made more holy and glorify him all the more. So they're trying to trace out the Holy Spirit's work in their own soul so that they may render God the praise and grow in holiness. And when you work with people who really do that, who do examine themselves and then come to assurance of faith based on the evidences of grace within them, you'll find them very active for the Lord and full of grace and, and really solid, strong members of the Christian community. However, if people just do tend to fall into that and they just examine themselves and they don't look to Christ, they can fall into a kind of introspectionism that ends in what I call experientialism rather than true experiential faith, where you actually end up focusing on your experience for their own sake rather than for Christ's sake. And the goal, of course, always is in experiential theology that you end up looking to Christ and it drives you to Christ. Your lack drives you to Christ and also the graces that you do find drive you to Christ because he gets all the credit for them anyway. So the goal is to grow in holiness in a Christological way through uh, looking at your experience. Great answer. Anybody? Yeah. I think he pretty much covered that. I think he's right. I think he's right too. <laughs> that was good. That was helpful. <laughs> okay, Dr. Beaky. As a Dutch Reformed pastor and theologian, how do you assess the rising popularity of neo-Calvinist transformationalism within Reformed circles and the influence of Kuiper upon a new generation of Reformed culture warriors? Can I take a look at that? That was a, that was a mouthful. Rising popularity. Oh. I ask this because the two-kingdom transformationalist debate has been discussed a number of times. 
on MLS. Okay, I think this is a question for you, isn't it? Because you, this is your cup of tea. <laughs> I can take it. Um, I mean, I could make a comment there without really answering that in great detail. I would say what interests me about all of the hype about transformationism at the moment is if you think of Kuiper, who was Kuiper? Kuiper had a newspaper, he had a university, he had a political party, and he was prime minister of the Netherlands. At the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century in Europe, where everything was aligned to transform culture in a Christian direction. You go to Amsterdam today and you're hard-pressed to find a church where you can worship in an orthodox context on a Sunday morning. Forget Sunday evening. So this is, a, in some ways, it's a commonsensical response, but I find it ironic that Kuiper has become the hero of transformationism when Kuiper came, dare I say it, as close as anybody since the end of the 4th century in transforming the culture and proved ultimately such an abject failure. So that's not a theological answer, but it is to say I don't find it impressive that there are Christian film, you know, there's the occasional Christian film director out there or the occasional Christian ballet dancer or lawyer. They're not going to transform the culture because Kuiper couldn't do it. With all of that firepower, Kuiper couldn't do it. So regardless of how the transformation two kingdoms debate, and I'm really an ordinary means of grace guy, I'm not a two kingdoms guy, regardless of how that debate carves up, I think transformationists need to look at the history and understand that their ambitions need to be dramatically scaled down because you know, the production of a Christian movie, that is nothing compared to what Kuiper did. And what Kuiper did ultimately amounted culturally to nothing. So that's a rather polemical kind of response to that. But, and it's really a historical one and a theological one, but that's where I think the challenge lies for those who, who wish to cite Kuiper as, as the great hero of transformationism. If anything, he represents to me the magnificent ruins of transformationism because he wasn't able to pull it off with all the firepower he had. Did you find, Carl, did you find Nicolas Cage convincing in the Left Behind movie? I utterly convincing, yeah. <laughs> Carl gave us such an optimistic answer, didn't he? I looked at, at a footnote about Kuiper himself that often the transformational people don't, don't I think, emphasize that Kuiper has this very, very pietistic side to him also. And he wrote daily um, spiritual meditations for people to read. They were published in a number of books. Actually, I sit on the Dutch Reform Translation Society, and right now we are translating to English uh, a couple, 180 of those for publication, and it's almost done, actually, just go, going through the, edit, uh, the uh, editing stage. And uh, Dr. James E. Young, who's translated them, said, he's been so spiritually formative in his own life in, in, a, in a healthy, pietistic, experiential way that he, he just himself, and he was Christian reformed all his life, didn't realize how pietistic Kuiper really was in his own private life when he actually sat down to write personal meditations. And so when you only take one side of Kuiper, you can do a lot of damage when you only emphasize one side, and actually you become less pietistic when you ignore the other side of Kuiper, where he really did have this very warm personal relationship with God, which was the foundation of his energy as he sought to, to transform things. All right, I want to switch gears and let's go to this side of the table again. Um, 
since we're talking to students in seminary, you guys are involved in rigorous study, hopefully, right now. And many of you are going to take a call to the pastorate. But that's a total change, really, from what they're doing now as a student in their academics. So um, what are some ways that pastors can gain support from their elders and congregation um, for sabbaticals or not even taking a sabbatical, but different ways that they can continue to grow as a theologian and to stay connected with the, the theological issues in, in academic culture and in contemporary culture, and then also be able to serve as, as a pastor to their church still, faithfully? I, I would say you have to have a session if you're serving um, on a church that's led by elders. You, you have to be a part of a session that really values that because ultimately they're the ones who are helping the church understand that um, X number of hours each week for this man has to be carved away uh, for study beyond just his sermon preparation, that we value that, that we want that. Um, and so that leadership has to come, hopefully, from, from the session. And, and, and the congregation will will value that. If, if, they, if they see the fruit of that, they'll value that. If they're able to come to you with their questions, if they're able to, um, to get in touch with you that way, and if you make yourself available um, outside of Sunday mornings to answer their theological questions. I, I, one of the things that amazed me when I first went into ministry as a youth pastor was that I spent so much time trying to answer questions about the Bible from junior high students. I didn't expect junior high students. Now, I mean, it seems rather obvious, but um, I would constantly get theological questions and questions about the Bible uh, from students. And so uh, pastors need to constantly be sharpening the blade that way, and, and the session has to be on board to understand that when, you, when your study door is, is closed and, and you're studying, that you have to, as a pastor, treat that like you would treat um, an appointment. Um, but uh, but, but that, that doesn't mean you have permission to be a 24-hour-a-day introvert. You've got to be with people, but, but you do need uh, time to be studying things that are, that are outside of just uh, the sermon prep. Um, One thing my pastor does, which I find pretty interesting, is um, he gets a long weekend, and he has kept in touch with a couple of his seminary buddies, and they all live across the country now, but they meet you know, somebody's home, just them, and they prepare before they go, so they'll pick a different topic that's kind of being debated in um, academics. So I think this year it might have been republication or something. And they'll study it, and then they'll each give a sermon and do some debating and just learning for a long weekend, and then they return. I just I think that's a wonderful gift for the church to be able to give them the time to do that, and it's a blessing back to the church then and affects you know, their preaching and their shepherding. Do you guys want to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I, a couple things I think are important. One thing is I've learned that when I involve the whole eldership or even the whole consistory, as we call it, recession, say, you know, I need time, I need this, and, the, and everybody starts talking about me and my time, and I feel uncomfortable with that. I get overwhelmed with it. People have ideas, you should do this, and you shouldn't do that. And they start. I like the idea of what we do in our church. There's two elders. They come to me every six months, and they say, How's the time management going? Are you getting overwhelmed? Are you facing burnout? Are there any problems? And um, ask me how I'm doing spiritually. And uh, we just have a half-hour chat. And it's no big deal. It doesn't involve a lot of people, a lot of attention. Because I think that most of all, we as ministers 
carve out ourselves. If I have a conference I really want to go to, I tell them I'm going to this conference. It's okay. They know I work hard enough. They don't raise a question. I don't have to write it all down and sign it. and Just, just do it on your own and be self-disciplined. And a lot of it you just have to do, you know, let them know, a couple of elders know, or one elder know, but, but just do it. And, but, but be disciplined enough to know what you really need to do and what you want to do for, for yourself. And if you keep your ministry very interesting to yourself, you actually need less downtime and less sabbaticals, et cetera, et cetera. So I always say to ministers, always be teaching on three levels. Be doing things on three levels. Be doing things at about the level where you're at, the middle level, that's, that's your preaching, your teaching of adult Bible study, whatever. And then do something on a simple level you don't have to have notes, and, and you can just pour your heart into it, like teaching kids or doing chapels at school. But always have something going where you're working at a level above yourself, where you're stretching yourself. Be involved in some book area, some writing, some article, and that will keep you stimulated. And uh, that's half the battle, just, just having these different levels and learning to operate within those levels and involve your eldership actually very little in this whole process. All right, this is another question for Dr. Beakey. In good experiential preaching, how should we understand what God is doing in and through the preacher? In good experiential preaching, the preacher, in terms of time on the pulpit, actually speaks very little about himself. Um, privately, in house-to-house -house visitation, you might say a few more things about yourself, but your focus is on your people, and you love your people, but your people will be able to, like, like Thomas Boston said, I'm going to leave the smell of Christ behind wherever I go. Your people will be able to tell, if you've been in your study that, that week, if, you, if you've had communion with God, it will come out somehow on Sunday in the content of what you preach. And so I think the whole focus is to get your people to look away from you and look to Jesus Christ. doesn't mean you're impersonal. doesn't mean you're not warm. But you don't want to be bringing your own experiences on the pulpit. Uh, as a general rule, I'm not saying never, you can't ever say anything about yourself, but when you do use something in your own experience as a sermon illustration, make sure it really, really illustrates the point, and be careful not to be self-congratulatory in whatever you say uh, in the pulpit, or be unnecessarily self-deprecatory either. The point is you want people to, to know Christ better, and that's got to come through in all your, all your preaching. What would you guys say is the place or the priority of evangelism in the pastor's busy um, teaching and shepherding life? Well, I, I hope that every week as we're preaching, we're doing evangelism. Um, I think to a certain extent, all preaching um, is evangelistic if it's preaching that is pointing to Christ. Whether you are uh, primarily preaching to a converted audience, you are nevertheless holding up Christ um, and, and part of that is in hopes that someone who doesn't know Jesus is going to look to Christ. So um, I very much consider what I do every Sunday morning in the pulpit as, as evangelistic in that sense. But I, I think it's also very important, even if you're, if you're more introverted um, as a pastor, to do some things strategically. So one of the things I try to do is um, strate some strategic patronage. And so I'll try to do part of my sermon prep in a few local coffee shops um, every week. I can't do it all there because at some point I need to be back in my study where it's a little quieter, but um, several days a week I'll spend a few hours 
in um, two or three different coffee shops where I'm, I've gotten to know some of the people who work there and um, some of the other regulars and uh, to look for opportunities like that to share Christ. I, just because as a Christian man, I need to be looking for opportunities um, to share Christ. Um, if for no other reason than to not be a hypocrite because I commend that to the people I'm preaching to as well. I think you can um, view preaching as, a, as the opportunity to do evangelism and forget that your whole ministry is to be evangelism. So you do a funeral. It's evangelism. You've got a captive crowd. A wedding is evangelism. The counseling for the wedding. The follow-up at the funeral. Um, counseling in the office. So if, if everything is gospel-centered, then evangelism is a part of everything that you're doing as well as the preaching. That's good. Dr. James Greer, about 20 years ago, told me that whenever he gets on an airplane, which was often, he always tries to evangelize the person next to him because, first of all, the person can't go anywhere. And, you've got, and, and secondly, you know, you're usually sitting next to an unbeliever, and so this is a wonderful opportunity. And um, that really convicted me, so I've been trying to do that for the last 20 years. And I just find that a wonderful opportunity to also get to know how worldly people are thinking, people of other backgrounds. So now my wife is also off coming with me more and more because our kids are getting older. So I notice she's evangelizing the person because I just sit in the aisle. She's evangelizing the person next to us. So we have a lot of interesting conversations with people. And I, I do think that a pastor should see every unconverted person as a mission field and really make an extra effort and try to pick out a couple people. You know, also maybe young men in the congregation who are running astray or a fringe member and try to have lunch with them, meet with them, really evangelize them on a one-to-one -one basis. That's actually good for the minister as well. But your idea of going to a coffee shop and preparing your sermon is wonderful for you, but that would be a total flop for me. I could imagine preparing a sermon in a coffee shop. But, so I, if you have ADD. Yeah. Because then you get to provide you. But ministers have to find their own way here too, I think. Right. Even as a congregant, I found that um, you know just carrying a book with me wherever I go, like if I'm at the doctor's office, you never leave without a book, and people ask so many questions just about the book that you're reading. Especially if it's the Bible. Yeah. 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 Now, who is Joyce Meyer? That kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> He's my hero. Okay, moving on. Dr. Beakey, what benefits and drawbacks came from the Puritans' focus on conversion? Well, the benefit was that when you read Puritan conversion stories, they have a ring of authenticity to them, and there is some depth to them. And that was fostered by the preaching. It was also fostered by catechetical evangelism in the homes afterward. Richard Baxter, for example, said, when I came to Kidderminster at the end of, his sermon, end of his ministry, he said, when I came to Kidderminster, I could scarcely take you to one home per block where there was one genuine Christian who could tell how they came to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I can scarcely point you to a home in the whole village where there's not someone in that home that doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he made this amazing statement. I believe of the 600 converts the Lord has given me in this city or thereabouts, I cannot take you to a single convert who has backslidden from the faith and has gone back into the world. That's astonishing. 
But why did they, how did they do that? Well, it wasn't just preaching from the pulpit, it was also follow-up visitation in what they called family visitation or soul visitation on a regular basis. So they really, really discipled <clears throat> their converts. <clears throat> and I think that's, that's an important thing. And they set the bar high for conversion, but not so high that it's unreachable. Uh, people often think that about the Puritans, that, oh, wow, they made it so high that nobody could reach it. You know what? Thomas Shepard, um, some clerk, took down all the conversion stories that, of com- credible com- professions of faith, and they've been published by an obscure publisher. And I read all 150 of those, and they're all like a half a page. And basically, they all say how a person became a lost sinner before God, found Christ under a certain sermon or through, through talking with someone, and, and now they want to live holy, but they still grieve over their remaining sin. It was just basic Heidelberg Catechism, misery, deliverance, gratitude. There was nothing extraordinary about the conversions at all. But they were sound conversions, and they bore fruit. So I think that's the advantage. You've got sound conversions. The Puritans were good at giving you marks of grace that were realistic and biblical and weren't over the top. Disadvantage, I mentioned in my, in my presentation, there were certain Puritans, a minority, sometimes who lingered too long over certain aspects of the initial preparatory work of grace that um, became a little bit disconcerting for people who aren't always led in that same ordinary way. And just to piggyback off that and sort of go back to the earlier question about Kuiper, when you think about Kidderminster, the culture of Kidderminster was transformed. And how was it transformed? It was transformed through gospel preaching and conversions. Um, Kidderminster became a place where husbands presumably weren't getting drunk and beating their wives up. Uh, Kidderminster was utterly transformed during Baxter's time. And, you know, I don't want to go back and hit Kuiper yet again, but I'm about to, I suppose. But I say, that's how culture's transformed. Culture in Kidderminster was transformed by the gospel being preached and by people being converted. Not all pastors have that privilege, and so maybe I can end with this question, is, is what have you found useful in the battle of despair over um, your ministry, uh, like that your preaching isn't good enough, or you've just preached a clunker, or um, I'm not shepherding enough, or just not feeling like you are succeeding as where you would like to? Well, I've been broken broken terribly. I actually was deposed from the ministry in 1993 because they said my preaching was too Arminian and I came from a hyper-Calvinistic background. I was trying to change things and were forced to start a whole new denomination against my will and I know what it's like to be broken, to be rejected, to be crawling on the ground, um, pulling in my old shag carpeting, crying out to God for mercy and um, yeah, it was very, very difficult for six long, painful years as they tried to get rid of me and finally succeeded. Um, But I think the thing that helped me the most through that long, very, very painful process was thinking about how I have treated Christ and that no matter how badly anyone treated me, it wasn't as badly as I treated the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had mercy on me and forgave me completely why could I not forgive these people who treated me so terribly completely as well? And see it as God's way to confirm in my life what um, someone once said, God will not use a man greatly until he's broken him deeply. And I feel, because of my own pride and my own tendencies, I needed that brokenness, and I thank God for that brokenness until today. And through being broken, 
I believe that God gives a pastor a greater pastoral heart for people in all kinds of difficult situations. And then you learn to comfort others with the comfort with which you were comforted of God. So when you really believe in the ministry that all things work together for good to those that love God, uh, that's a huge help. When you get broken, when you're going through tough times, you say, this is my father bringing me through tough times. My father knows best what I need. And this I know. I need every affliction he sends my way. So keep persevering. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep setting aside the sin. Run the race before you, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And one day, he will bring you home to glory, into sin-free Emmanuel's land, and he will say, and these are the most precious words for a minister in all the Bible, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Keep running to the end. He persevered to the end, and he'll give you grace to persevere to the end as well. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. This week we have two messages on our website for you to listen to. Head over to the podcast page at mortificationofspin.org to listen to Calvinistic Experimental Preaching by Joel Beakey and The Glory of Christ in the Scriptures by Kent Hughes. And join us for next week's Bully Pulpit. We're going to be talking about the spirituality of the church. With all the social and political issues Christians are involved in, we have to ask some questions. Is God's rule different in the common kingdom of everyday life than it is in His holy kingdom of the church? What's the church's relationship with society? And what does that mean for individual Christians living their daily lives? So join us for that discussion next week. And in the meantime, head over to mortificationofspin.org to read, comment, and subscribe to the Mortification of Spin blog or join our email list. And be sure to listen to those messages by Joel Beakey and Ken Hughes. We'll talk to you next week. Rev Master T. Just the, the, to give you the short story about story, story, story about five or six years ago, Colin Campbell, who does children's gospel story, story, story about Colin Campbell, who does children's gospel records in Australia. I got an email from him. I didn't know who he was, and he said, in Australia. I listened to a lecture you gave on Gregory Nazianzus. Would you mind if I turned it into a children's rap album? Rap album courtesy of Carl R. Truman Associates.